This is Ringler Radio, where you get all the latest news and information about the structured settlement industry from the experts in the know. Ringler Associates, the undisputed leader in structured settlements for more than 30 years and the only broker you need. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Allstate, American General Structured Settlements, Aviva, The Hartford, Liberty Life, MetLife, New York Life, John Hancock, and Prudential. Now, join Ringler Radio host, Larry Cohen. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Ringler Radio. I'm Larry Cohen, the head of Ringler Associates Northeast Operations, and also your host here on Ringler Radio. Well, today we're going to do something a little different than normal. We're going to talk about a specific case uh, with the plaintiff lawyer who pursued it to a, uh, to a judgment. And I have a co-host with me as well, who I'll introduce soon. But this is a medical malpractice case that uh, was very, very uh, tragic, but yet very interesting at the same time. In October, the husband of a woman uh, named Genevieve Lupp was awarded over $1.2 million dollars by a jury after a Harrisburg radiology group failed to timely diagnose and treat her for breast cancer, which ultimately resulted in her untimely death. This is a Pennsylvania case. And uh, here's some of the details to uh, to set this up for our discussion. Uh, Genevieve Lupp received uh, uh, an ultrasound uh, on her breast at Tristan Associates, also known as Harrisburg Breast Diagnostic Center, located in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And the radiologist you know, failed to identify certain factors and follow up. because of, uh, And because of this, Mrs. Lupp was not diagnosed with breast cancer until 1999, which was about a five-year delay. And uh, by means of testing, it was proven that if a diagnosis had been made earlier uh, and appropriate treatment had been affected, uh, Mrs. Lupp would have been cured of the cancer. But unfortunately, by the time the cancer was actually diagnosed, it had already metastasized, and uh, after the diagnosis, she underwent mastectomies and chemotherapies, as you can imagine, uh, and then uh, the cancer spread, and she unfortunately passed away in December of 2001. Well, today on Ringler Radio, we're going to take a look at this case, and we're going to focus on the verdict and discuss the importance of uh, timely diagnosis and treatments of breast cancer. And joining me today to uh, help in this discussion is my co-host, and Ringler colleague, Bill Wakeley, from our settlement uh, office in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Bill, welcome. Thanks, Larry. Good to be here. And uh, I just wanted to ask you, Bill, uh, there's no r- truth to the rumor that you're going to become a, uh, a middle relief specialist for the Phillies, is it? No, I would probably last about two days and then uh, be icing my arm down for a month. But uh, well, congratulations I, I on your congratulations on your World Series victory, Bill. I know you uh, you were at one of the couple of those games at least. Yes, and I'm hoping that uh, we don't have to wait uh, quite as long to get the next one. <laughs> Terrific. Well, that's good. And, and Bill, why don't you introduce our special guest? Uh, absolutely, Larry. Thanks. Thanks so much. Um, you know, here to discuss this case is, is, with with us, uh, Larry is Peter Villari. Uh, Peter's an equity partner and senior trial counsel at Valari Brandis and Klein uh, in Conshohocken, Pennsylvania, right outside Philadelphia. Uh, for over 25 years, Peter's been successfully litigating complex matters, both medical malpractice and otherwise, for individuals and businesses. So welcome to the show, Peter Valari. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity. Well, Peter, we, we just gave some uh, background on the case, um, but obviously we don't have the flavor of it. You lived with it. Uh, Tell us a little bit more about the, what the issues were in this case. Well, it really came down to, um, uh, very interestingly, a very specific point about how 
uh, mammographies and ultrasounds are done and continue to be done. Uh, in 1993, uh, Genevieve Lupp had had a mammography that showed some questionable uh, shapes, tumors, lesions, whatever, and when that happens, they want to find out whether it's solid or not. Uh, and an ultrasound is used for that purpose because a mammogram cannot show a doctor whether something is solid. Uh, they went forward in 93 and did an ultrasound, and they identified uh, in uh, what they would call like a 4 o'clock position on her breast. And if you can imagine putting a clock face over a woman's breast and then looking straight on and defining positions by time, uh, they found a very small uh, nodule in the 4 o'clock area that they did define as solid, and they measured it. Now, when they measure these, they take calipers or markers, and a technician, not a doctor, a technician places these markers, and they're in the shape of little X's or little crosses, and they put these markers or calipers on the edge of what they believe is the nodule. Now, sometimes, because this is done manually, these markers can be placed differently. In this particular case, in 1993, the technician placed these caliber markers right on the defined edge of this solid mass, such that the line or the edge of the mass, if you can think of like a balloon, uh, the edge of the balloon, the surface of the balloon, cut right through the heart of the X's and the crosses. Once that's done manually, the computer automatically measures size and it gives them a marker, a baseline on this particular solid nodule. Now, because it was solid in 93, the radiologist did what was right. The radiologist told the family doctor who he was reporting to, this is suspicious, we want to watch it, we want to see her back in a year, and we want to keep an eye on this. The year goes by, Mrs. Lupp comes back as she's asked to do, and uh, frankly, at all times, Genevieve Lupp was very, very vigilant and proactive in her care when it came to uh, her breasts and possible cancer. She had a history of cancer in the family. She did regular breast exams. She was sensitive when she felt lumps. So she does come back, as told. And in 94, we have the same process. A mammogram is done. They see the same suspicious matters. They go on to do the ultrasound. And there you go. They see the same exact nodule at 4 o'clock. This time, interestingly enough, a different technician is doing the procedure, and you have a technician and the radiologist. Of course, it's a team. The technician places the same calipers, but they place them differently. This technician, for whatever reason, and it may have been the habit of the technician, placed them inside the edge of the tumor, inside the balloon, so to speak. And then the computer made the measurements. Of course, if you can visualize... It would show it smaller. It's smaller. Yeah. And then, frankly, the doctor in his mind... The radiologist said, wow, that's a big decrease in volume. Over 70%, he, he said he, he measured it with a very complex formula. So he thought, well, it got smaller, and therefore, if it's smaller, it can't be cancer. And he never mentions it in the summary section of the report, which all family doctors or referring doctors read. All it basically said was, well, she's benign in this left breast. No need to follow up except regular follow-up. And at that point, there's a disconnect, and at that point, the trail goes cold on this solid lesion because he thought smaller meant no cancer. Mm. So that is the very specific issue that came into play in this case, and that is where we focused in terms of the negligence because once that trail went cold, no one looked at that area of her breast again specifically. 
until almost five years later. So, Peter, the, the, the doctor was essentially negligent in the diagnosis and, and I guess all the follow-ups of the findings. I mean, do you find this, is this a common occurrence in this type of litigation? Well, in this particular litigation, we learned that it is a common occurrence because it is accepted within the radiologic industry, uh, Bill, that uh, it's a known fact that these calipers can be placed differently. And it's accepted that the radiologist must know this and therefore should never make a determining diagnosis on a solid lesion just because the size goes down or the size goes up. You keep watching it, and if it's solid again, you biopsy it and you find out what it is. You, you, you don't let your, hang your hat on size. And he was new. He had not looked at films like this for several years. He was brought back into this practice. He had only been there six months. He just came out of their mentoring process after six months and was put on his own. And Genevieve Lupp was one of the first patients he uh, looked at on his own. And his inexperience came into play, uh, although I will tell you through the, throughout the entire trial, they kept continuing to say to the jury, it was okay to say it wasn't cancer because it was smaller. And that is absolutely wrong. And in fact, one of their own experts finally admitted when we cross-examined him that you never, ever rule out breast cancer because a solid lesion or nodule gets smaller. You don't, because within the industry, it's known that the measurement involves a human factor and the measurements can be inaccurate. So yes, this is still going on. There's no doubt about it. And hopefully, radiologists that are out there and ultrasonographers that are out there uh, understand that the sizes can differ. Well, P- Peter, Peter, let's, let's, for the audience, give them a little bit more insight here, because we want to talk about what needs to change when it comes to diagnosing breast cancer. But, mm-hmm. but let's talk about this assistant uh, that the radiologist had with, with him. You talked about these calipers. Is, is this a manual process, or is this an automated, uh, is there a machine that does this, or is this some a human hand actually placing some marker on this particular uh, film? And... Is there a protocol for where these markers should be placed, outside or inside of a, of a margin or something like that? How does that work? Well, within this case, uh, there was no protocol for the particular practice. Uh, in speaking with other practices, we found that um, they also really didn't have protocols because they never relied on the actual size. Uh, but in terms of whether it's manual or computer, it's both. Mm-hmm. The technician with an ultrasound is looking at a screen that shows this shape, this lesion, mm-hmm. this nodule. And they then manually, much like you would with a computer uh, mouse, move the X's and the crosses until they put them where they want them. Okay. So that's manual. They're not actually taking a marker in their hand and doing mm-hmm, it. This mm-hmm. is all done via a picture and much like you would move a mouse on the screen of a computer. And the object, the X's and the crosses, are placed once they have them where they want them, they then freeze it and take the picture. And then the computer measures between the X's and the crosses. That's done automatically so that that is always accurate. So the inaccuracy can come in because there is really not a protocol that we could find published anywhere in any literature, in any radiology standards or ultrasound standards. Ultrasound standards we could find nothing that said the X's or the crosses should always be placed on the exact edge as you see it 
within the inside or within the outside. So, so given all that, what changes do you think need to be made when it comes to diagnosing breast cancer? What is, what, what would you like to see happen differently that may have prevent that may prevent this in the future? I, I think what what in, in, li- in light in light of what happened here, in light of what happened here, in light of what happened here, I, I really would like to believe this is an isolated incident where the involved doctor, the involved radiologist just didn't understand this variation. Uh, What we found when we spoke to uh, experts who were radiologists and other radiologists just to talk to them uh, before we brought this case, uh, it's a known fact within the industry that radiologists should be taught that if you see a difference in size in something that's solid, don't hang your hat on it because the technician who goes through proper training, who are all certified, who every year have to basically be you know, re-looked at, retested, recertified, so that they're up on things, they have to make this manual judgment as to where to put these calipers. So don't automatically say just because it's smaller, it's not dangerous. So I don't know that there has to be a change, but perhaps because this case happened, the industry might do well to publish something, perhaps as you said, a protocol, a rule, saying that, hey, let's try to put these calipers always in the same spot. And by the way, there can still be variation because it can't be exact. Human eyes are involved. Don't hang your hat on it when it's solid. You know, Peter, that brings up an interesting point, and, and, and maybe we can kind of step back here and, you know, from a layman's standpoint maybe and take a look at this. Throughout this process, there's obviously a lot of people involved in the diagnosis and in the treatment. How do you guys... Um, you know, how do you approach the liability in this case? I mean, from the physician standpoint, the radiology group, all the various people involved, how do you kind of assess, you know, who did what and what was kind of the the, the crux of the case? Well, initially, of course, the family comes to you because they're devastated that they lost their mother. They don't understand how they could lose their mom to breast cancer when she was so active and vigilant with her breast exams, how she went for all of these studies. How can it be that five years Uh, go by where she seems to be fine, and then, bam, she has a cancer that's very progressed, very big, a very big lump in her breast. How could they not see it? Well, they ask us that question, and, of course, we have some experience in this area, and we do know it can happen. It can sometimes happen through the fault of no one. But given what was was at stake, someone died, a very lovely woman died, we pull the records, and we start looking at it from every potential angle. Did the radiologist see it? Was it there? And misdiagnose it because you have to use your experience and your training as a radiologist as to what you're looking at. Is it solid? Is it not solid? Are the borders irregular? Are they smooth? To determine whether it's a cancer or not. Uh, and then if we see that the radiologist, based on what he saw, he or she saw, or was told, reported it properly, then we look at, well, was it reported properly by the actual process, the technician? Did the technician do things correctly? Um, So you look at it from every potential factor, and then you also look at once the doctor who referred the woman for the study gets the information, did that doctor act properly on the information? So there's layers of care here, and in this particular case, we were able to conclude uh, after we got the records certain things. Now, we could not conclude everything with just records because, unfortunately, today, records don't have everything in them. We're not given an opportunity to call up the referring or family doctor, the radiologist, and the technician say, hey, can you explain some things to us? Medicine just doesn't allow us that. So we have to file a lawsuit, and because we thought there was 
substantial merit here. There was something that really shouldn't have happened. Uh, we filed a lawsuit, and we started taking these depositions that you take and ask for written documents. And in that process, we were able to find that the family doctor did act properly because the summary of the report in 94 didn't warn the doctor. We were able to find that other radiologists that had followed this woman through the year weren't wrong because they were never told about the 94 lesion. The trail went cold. They thought it was benign. They thought it was nothing wrong with it. So you, you go through this rather lengthy process until you focus in on what is actually the act that is negligent. And in this case, it was that very specific point in time where a radiologist made a bad diagnosis, a negligent diagnosis, and said, hey, it got smaller, so therefore it must not be a cancer because cancers always grow. And, and that, by the way, is not true either. Uh, cancers are very irregular in how, they, in how they progress. They sometimes even get smaller before they grow. So in this case, it came down to a radiologist who was inexperienced and was poorly educated and made a bad, uh, a bad diagnosis. Well, obviously it fell through the cracks, and uh, <clears throat> unfortunately, you know, the result occurred. Uh, we all hear, uh, Peter, that and you hear it in, you know, constantly on television and advertising and, and, and in doctors' offices that early detection is the key to uh, you know, curing and helping uh, overcome a cancer. What else could a patient, what else could, could this woman have done proactively to make sure that that system was working? Uh, what could she have done? You know, um, in retrospect, putting yourself in her shoes at that point in time, Unless she had been better educated, the public is better educated that these things can happen, I don't think that Genevieve Lupp could have done anything else, and certainly the defense never said that. They never alleged she could have. But looking into the future, I think women should be made aware that these are, there are these naturally occurring variations, that they can slip through the cracks because of negligence or just because they can. I mean, sometimes there's oversights, and they ought to ask for the reports, and most places do send them to the patient now, and they should look at the report and look at it with common sense, these mammography and ultrasound reports, and say, wow, that, that doesn't seem right. That's a little suspicious. They need to be proactive and ask questions. No, and are, aren't there technological advances that are occurring that are, you know, let's, it, it, mammography was the standard, I think, aren't mm -hmm. we moving to different, perhaps a different standard, more technologically advanced, maybe able to detect something a little bit um, smaller or earlier? Well, ultrasonography was brought in primarily because, as I said, uh, it can tell you whether it's a cyst, which is basically just a, uh, like a water-filled balloon, as opposed to being a solid uh, tumor. Uh, beyond that, MRI technology is really sparingly used in the diagnosis of breast cancer, and frankly, it, it, is, it is a better technology to do it. I don't know whether that's a factor of uh, economics. Yeah. Insurance companies don't want to pay for MRIs, but frankly, I, uh, I encourage my wife to get one, even at our own expense, uh, when there are suspicious things seen on her mammographies and ultrasounds. So the technology is out there to be used, i.e. The, the MRI, but it's not being used a lot. Well, we need a short break right now. When we return, we'll talk more about breast cancer litigation and this particular case, this tragic case, with attorney Peter Villari. We'll be right back. This is Ringler Radio, Internet radio from Ringler Associates. Quite simply, the undisputed leader in structured settlements for more than 30 years. Ringler Associates, the only broker you need. Listen to all the Ringler Radio shows. Just go to ringlerassociates.com and click on Ringler Radio and choose a topic. 
We invite you to listen to our other shows on the Legal Talk Network and become a member. It's free at www.legaltalknetwork.com. Since 1975, Ringler Associates has provided the finest structured settlement services to injured parties and their attorneys. Experience counts. Over 130,000 cases structured. Did you know that Legal Talk Network shows are also available as CLE? Including Ringler Radio. Visit Law.com's CLE Center at www.clecenter.com. That's clecenter.com to enjoy listening and get CLE credit. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Allstate, American General Structured Settlements, Aviva, The Hartford, Liberty Life, MetLife, New York Life, John Hancock, and Prudential. Welcome back to Ringler Radio. I'm your host, Larry Cohen. I'd like to welcome back our special guest, Peter Villari, partner and senior trial counsel at Villari, Brandis, and Klein. And, of course, also my special guest host, Bill Wakeley, from our Philadelphia office. Uh, Peter, let me ask you this question. Uh, th- we're going to talk about how this case resolved and, and, and what happened in terms of the, the jury. But let me ask you a, a more basic question. Is it the opinion of yourself or the doctors in the, involved in this case that this death could have been avoided? Oh, absolutely. Um, medicine, particularly oncology, that branch of medicine that deals with the, these cancers and how they grow and how they can be cured uh, has really progressed to the point where they can predict with many, many cancers what the result would have been had the cancer been diagnosed and dealt with earlier. And in this case, a very, very accomplished oncologist uh, from Sloan Kettering uh, Cancer Center in New York looked at uh, this breast cancer uh, and said that uh, if this tumor had been dealt with in 94 or as late as the end of 95 and biopsied. And if it was biopsied, they would have seen it was cancer and taken out. There was over a 98% chance that she would have been 100% cured and would be alive today. Wow. And, And that is the tragedy here because as proactive as Genevieve was, she slipped through the cracks because I'd like to say an inexperienced radiologist just didn't get it. Um, and that's why, as we said earlier, women really need to be more proactive. And if they are made aware that these kind of things can happen, I think they'll do more and look at these reports and ask, hey, you know, this was solid. Why wasn't it followed up on? And they should be told certain things that solid is dangerous, cyst is not. And if it's ever solid on a report that they are sent, they should never just let someone ignore it. Now, let me ask you just one, one more follow-up to that, and, and that is we always hear about people should get second opinions. Was there any responsibility on her part to hearing that the, the tumor had gone down or whatever that was, that maybe she, she should have got one more second opinion on that, or, or is that something that wasn't ever spoken about? It, it was never an issue in the case because the defense never took that position because it w- would have been a wrong position. She was told in no uncertain terms that the breast, her left breast and the, the shapes and the forms, the nodules they saw in there were all cysts and all benign. Mm-hmm. So and wh- therefore, wh- she had no idea whatsoever yeah. that this time bomb was left in her body. Yeah, why mess with good news? I uh, hear well, you. yeah, and, and 
at that point, it, it still wasn't a regular process back in 94 for radiology centers to send reports to patients. Many times, family doctors gave them to the patient. And in this case, the family doctor did give it to Genevieve Lupp. But when she looked at the summary section where it said recommendations, it said left breast, right breast, benign, follow up in one year. And she came back in one year. Peter, can we uh, can we kind of go down a, a different path now that we've kind of got the, the you know the the essential details of the case and, sure. and and kind of the background of the case? Can you talk about a little bit about the the settlement itself or the verdict? I should say in this mm-hmm. case. I mean, these are obviously very hard economic times. I mean, was this was this shocking for what, in my experience, is is a pretty conservative county in, in Dauphin County, Pennsylvania? Well, it certainly was out of the ordinary in Harrisburg. In fact, uh, the judge commented to the family afterwards from the bench that uh, he was very surprised that we won the case uh, because it was the first time in 14 years in his courtroom that anyone had won a verdict in a malpractice case, let alone a verdict in excess of $1 million. Uh, You know, it, it is difficult times out there in the economy. I would like to believe that people will still do what's right if a case is presented to them honestly and properly, uh, as we did here. Uh, that is a lot of money uh, in, in Dauphin County, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. And, uh, but it still was the right amount of money when you look at this case for, you know, for what happened. Interesting. And I'm, I've been, you know, uh, my understanding is a $1.2 million judgment and then with some additional uh, add-ons, it's even going to be greater than that. Uh, and to be uh, one of the highest verdicts in that courtroom, uh, even though obviously it was a horrible case, uh, it must give you some satisfaction to know that you help these people. Um, you, you know, yeah, I, I, I've always been a, a, someone that likes to help an underdog, likes to help someone that gets hurt improperly. And uh, yeah, I, I, it warms my heart that we were able to, to do something for the family because they lost their mother, and she really was the head of that family. It was a family that revolved around her. Every Sunday there were dinners. All holidays she was there. She was grandmom and helped them raise, you know, her daughters and son raised their children. So, but, but not just that. I mean, this family wanted the public to know what happened to Genevieve because they didn't want it to happen again. And from my perspective, I, that, that is satisfying, too, because... Uh, while medicine tries to police itself, it doesn't always do the best job. And if we let things like this happen that are clearly negligent, that are clearly a tragedy and shouldn't happen, if we don't hold them responsible, then it's going to continue to happen, in my opinion. And uh, these type of verdicts in a community like Harrisburg tell medicine, we're not going to allow this. We're not going to tolerate these type of errors and you not being responsible and that is a very satisfying feeling. It, it must be. I mean, I, I'm looking here at my notes, Peter, and I, I noticed that the verdict did come down in October, which is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. So, <laughs> uh, you know, I don't know if you want to call that fate or appropriateness I, or whatever, but that's uh, certainly an interesting uh, conclusion for the family. I got to tell you, um, there were two things that happened in this case that really, I, I believe in fate, that made me believe that Genevieve was up in heaven smiling. Because, one, it, it, this trial got continued many, many times through no fault of our own. In fact, the defense lawyer, one of the defense lawyers, was diagnosed with testicular cancer, and that caused the trial to be delayed for a year. Wow. So, you know, here it comes after all these years, and it's Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and, and secondarily during the trial, one of the jurors was pregnant. 
and she had gone in for a test. And during trial, she gets a phone call that the doctor was concerned about something that he saw and wanted her in immediately. They took her right off that jury and whisked her out of there. And it's told the jury that medicine does react to even subtle things. Because it's funny, someone walked into the courtroom and said right in front of the, judge, the jury to the judge, Judge, Mrs. So-and-so, juror number two, she has to go. Her obstetrician called and said there was a subtle finding. You know, it might not be anything, but he wants her back here immediately. And they took her right out of the courtroom. So there were two things that, from a fate point of view, you had to say, my gosh, you know. Uh, you know, <laughs> the jury looking. might get it because of this. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm afraid you might even got a mistrial. Uh, well, some... we didn't <laughs> on that anyway. <laughs> exactly. I mean, uh, but uh, you know, the jury knew she was pregnant, and during the selection process, she was carefully asked, "Would it be a burden?" She said, "No, I'd really like to sit, but if something comes up, I may have to leave." And everyone understood and recognized that. So it wasn't it wasn't as if um, it presented an unfair advantage in any way. Well, finally, uh, I think it's very interesting that your firm, I think, is donating a portion of uh, proceeds of, of, this, of the fee you received in this case to some breast cancer research projects. Is that true? We are. Um, you know, uh, we're taking an amount of our fee, and we're going to allow the family to tell us where they would like it donated in Genevieve's name. Uh, we felt privileged to be a part of this um, and, and to bring it to a, a conclusion that hopefully will help people become aware. And, uh, of course, with the rest of the dollars, the family uh, is now looking, you know, to prudently invest it. And they always ask us about that. And uh, and many times we, we do recommend and, and really believe as a firm in the structured settlements and annuities that uh, we work, frankly, with your company on. Well, that's terrific. terrific. I mean, these are great, great products because, especially in an economy where putting money into a stock market is just like flushing it down a toilet, uh, these investments in these structures uh, – and, and the family, frankly, is already looking at that. Uh, these investments in these structures are guaranteed. They're with solid companies that, frankly, they go under. This country's gone under. And, and Bill and your company do a great job in getting the best rates, and uh, it's there. The money cannot be squandered. It's guaranteed. It comes in, and uh, they're very, very flexible in terms of how they're paid. And uh, we have always been a strong supporter of these products. Well, you know, Peter, we always say, uh, you know, that these are unique investors. They really are. They're they're people and families that have gone through traumatic situations, and you really can't often treat the money that they receive from these settlements as a, you know, a windfall or something that you might have gotten through a, through a will or a death in the family. I mean, this, this is money that, you know, typically needs to be safeguarded for, for very, very specific and unique reasons. So uh, it is something that, uh, you know, we appreciate that you look, uh, look to when, when you're discussing these options uh, with the families. But, I mean, you're so right that, um, you know, these people, our clients that come into these dollars many times are, are not sophisticated with large sums of money. And, you know, the first reaction is, boy, we can do so much. Let's go buy this. Let's go buy that. And then they step back and say, well, wait a minute. We don't want to do that. We want to make sure that this is really there as security for us, the grandchildren, children. And, and, and from our perspective as a law firm, Bill, and, and, and given them how you have educated us so well in these products, this is really a great way to do it, especially in today's economy. Well, it's great to hear that, and uh, it's great to hear that kind of a testimonial because we, we believe in it as well. And one one other thing, uh, Peter, I think the fact that you're donating some of this fee money to charity and to the breast cancer charities, I think in a way it's 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 taking a bad situation, a tragic situation, and maybe turning it into something good for someone else in the future, and I think that's commendable. Well, we hope so. And, and interestingly enough, CBS 
actually came in and filmed a, a wonderful segment with the children uh, on this because it was Breast Cancer Awareness Month, and they uh, are going to put it on national television to bring to the attention of women that, hey, as vigilant as you can be, you still have to be even more so and understand about these natural occurring variations in studies that could uh, could cause you to slip through the cracks. Well, we'll look forward to seeing that on television. And uh, on that note, I think we'll end here today. And I want to thank you, Bill, and uh, thank you, Peter, for uh, for joining me today. Peter, if someone wanted to reach you, how would they do that? Um, very easy. Uh, obviously, through the Internet, we have a, a website at uh, valarilaw.com, uh, V-I-L-L-A-R-I, or Feel free to give us a call um, on our 800 number, one eight 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 seven two nine two nine zero one. 729 Great. And Bill, how about yourself? Uh, thanks, Larry. I, we're also here in the, in the Philadelphia area. Um, the best way to get us is also our 800 number, one eight hundred eight six nine nine four five zero, or you can reach any of us at uh, www.ringlerassociates.com. Absolutely. And in case you're a first-time listener, you should know that every Ringler Radio Show can be downloaded from our website, ringlerassociates.com, or from the Legal Talk Network at legaltalknetwork.com. Or you can even download it from iTunes, which is pretty snazzy. So I want you to thank you all for listening. Uh, Peter, thank you again for this very interesting show. Now the rest of you go out and make it a great day. Thanks for listening to Ringler Radio. Ringler Associates Experience Counts. Since 1975, Ringler Associates has provided the finest structured settlement services to injured parties and their attorneys. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Allstate, American General Structured Settlements, Aviva, The Hartford, Liberty Life, MetLife, New York Life, John Hancock, and Prudential. Ringler Radio is produced by broadcast professionals at the Legal Talk Network.